and welcome to Essential Conversations in Social Services 2020, a Region 7 podcast. My name is Bree Sherry with MidAmerica ATTC. And my name is James Glenn, the co-director of the MidAmerica Addiction Technology and Transfer Center. Welcome, everybody. Today's topic is psychiatrist's view on supporting recovery in 2020. Our first guest is Dr. Melissa O'Dell from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Hi, Melissa. Hi, everybody. It's good to be here today. And we have Dr. Burgess from Truman Medical Centers and the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine. Hi, Doug. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. Before we get into the discussion, will each of you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds? Yeah. Hi. Um, So I am practicing in the Kansas City area. I've been here about 10 years. Um, I work at Truman Medical Centers, um, which is a large uh, hospital system in the Kansas City area. Um, And I also teach at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So kind of split my time in three different pools. Um, I uh, see my own patients in a dual diagnosis clinic, so patients with um, mental illness and substance use disorders. Um, I spend some of my time teaching residents and medical students. And then the rest of my time is spent as a uh, medical director of addiction services, uh, where I'm working to improve uh, substance use disorder services across the hospital system. And Melissa? So I'm an Omaha native. Um, just completed my residency training at, Uni- at Creighton and University of Nebraska Medical Center. And um, that's where I uh, practice and teach now, um, as well as a couple of other um, area clinics in um, in town. One is a federally qualified health center um, where I treat primarily underinsured or uninsured uh, folks, and then at a community mental health center where I co-lead an ACT team. At the med center, I'm um, director of our Aspire Clinic, which is our active support for psychosis and recovery, um, trying to provide um, multidisciplinary care for uh, people with serious mental illness. That's things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and, um, and teaching doctors and training how, um, how best to, to treat people with serious mental illness. It's no surprise that depression and anxiety and substance use disorder are on the rise due to COVID-19. Because of this, we wanted to hear your perspectives on what you're seeing and also give tips to people who might need a little extra support. James, would you like to get the conversation started? I'd love to. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, let's let's actually start, Dr. Adele, with you. Um, let, let's just talk. Let's just have a brief conversation about anxiety and depression and kind of what do we need to know given our current climate? Well, what's, um, you know, what's interesting is that some of my folks with um, serious mental illness are coping with everything a little better than I would have expected. So I'd like to actually talk about what I'm seeing outside the clinic and more um, in in my personal life and, and everybody I um, interact with um, who maybe in in normal times um, don't necessarily struggle with mental health problems and now are seeing their coping skills kind of really push past the brink of what they can handle and are maybe experiencing really significant problems with anxiety and depression um, for a lot of people in the first time, for the first time in their lives. Um, CDC just did a, a survey that indicated up to 40% of um, those surveyed were having clinically significant problems with anxiety and depression, which is um, kind of astounding. Um, and so I think it's, 
it's interesting as a, as a psychiatrist, I specialize in treating people with diagnosable mental health conditions that may need lifelong treatment. And, and right now there's um, so many people out there who maybe don't even really fall into that category of needing to see a psychiatrist or, um, or receive um, treatment for the rest of their lives, but who are right now really struggling and trying to figure out um, what, what they can do to, to manage these um, symptoms in a really difficult time. Well, and I mean, yeah, I mean, that's so funny you bring it up like that because really, uh, Melissa, I've seen the same thing too. Is and with so many people having act, having the experience of anxiety and depression, are we really going to have people with lived experience anymore? You know, how strong is stigma going to be? Is it going to come back strong, or are people going to have a different empathy towards for people with serious and persistent mental illness because they've now felt it, right? So, so many more people have felt it. Before I move on to Doug, talk to me a little bit about kind of your take on medications and. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I think particularly in our society, you know, we've always heard people are quick to kind of self-medicate and do this stuff. So what is your experience, and what would you want people to know about medication and kind of the misinformation that's out there directly from a psychiatrist? What's your take on that? I I guess I like people to um, to think of medication as one potential tool in the toolbox um, when you're treating anxiety and depression and, and substance use disorders, um, it's an option. It's not the only option. Therapy is um, sometimes um, used right alongside medications or sometimes instead of, and that's a conversation that, that you have with a treatment provider, um, whoever that may be. A lot of times the first contact you have with somebody when you're talking about your feelings of, um, of really feeling down would be your primary care doctor. And, you know, that initiating that conversation um, may be kind of scary for people, but it's um, if know that that's part of what they're there for. It's one of the most common things that people present to their primary care doctor's office with is a depression or anxiety. There are, there are medications that can be very helpful if you're open to that. Um, but if, if you're not thinking that you want to try medications, um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek help at, or that somebody's going to force something down your throat if you're not really interested in, in that form of treatment. I guess I'd encourage people to keep an open mind and just start having the discussion if they feel like they need help um, with with an open mind. Yeah, I think that's really important, particularly for someone um, like you to say, because I do think that people feel like, you know, they get pigeonholed if they get into help. I think that's the one of the misinformations or misconceptions about mental health is, you know, that we're going to immediately put you on medications or we're going to immediately try uh, something that maybe you don't want. And it's so nice to hear that that's, you know, I know that from working in the field, but a lot of people don't know that outside of there. So thanks for, for validating that. Can I so, add on to that, James, because I was, as she was speaking, a couple of things came to mind. Um, so I, I agree with Melissa 100%. And, and I would even say for me, um, you know, it would be a warning sign if you went to uh, a, a psychiatrist that only wanted to offer medications. I think that that's, you know, generally um, in psychiatry, we we know that there are multiple uh, routes to recovery and, and uh, treatment, and, and it should really be a very collaborative process. Um, if you work with a doctor and determine that a medication might be appropriate, I always remind people that it is just a trial. Um, and I also talk to people about, you know, there's risks associated with the medicines, but there's also, you know, and, and people are concerned about side effects, but I kind of reframe it as well and say, well, we know that there's also potential side effects to not taking medication. So if you're having severe symptoms that are impairing your life, 
um, those are things that we know are already there. And any side effects that could potentially be associated with medications are generally very, very mild. And if you experience those, you discontinue the medication and those side effects go away. So it really is just a trial. Uh, the majority of people are not on medications for the rest of their life. So it really is just a tool and uh, among a lot of tools. The final thing that I would say, I think people sometimes have misconceptions about what medications actually do. Um, they're concerned that it's going to change who they are or their personality. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the medications are, they tend to be very, very mild and most people don't notice any changes. Um, and, and in fact, that can be kind of frustrating at times because you're taking something you're like, well, I don't really feel any different. And it's not until you consistently take it for a while that you get sort of these subtle changes. Yeah, no, I think that's super important because at least I know my experience of being in behavioral health is a lot of people have said, I don't really want to go to a psychiatrist and talk to him because then I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life. And I'm hearing that from you just reiterates, in my opinion, that more people are not, right? And I think that's just this fear and the story that's out there that um, that kind of one of those things that have prevented people from seeking help. So, so Doug, let's go to you and talk a little bit about, since we talked a little bit about anxiety and depression, let's talk about what you're seeing with substance use. Obviously, um, the trends in behavioral health right now, you know, we're seeing alarming trends, actually, with just abusing substances and people relapsing and just the stress and anxiety that comes with this. And so talk to us a little bit about what you see and maybe give us some ideas, the audience, some ideas on, you know, what questions should we be asking ourselves um, and loved ones when it starts to become kind of a problem in our lives? Give us some take from your viewpoint. Yeah. So similar to Melissa, you know, it's sort of two separate. I work in a specialty clinic, so I'm already working with patients that generally have moderate to, be, to severe substance use disorder. So in, in terms of what I'm seeing at work is this has been a really challenging time for people. Um, when you think about the things that are commonly associated with substance use disorder, this idea of isolation uh, comes up a lot. You know, um, when when people are using substances and they feel ashamed, it's very um, you know, it's, it's a it's, it's a lonely experience, and I think by its very nature, you know, social distancing and and having to quarantine and isolate um, it for a lot of people, it's very you know, it reminds them of what it was like when they were in in the active stage of their their substance use disorder. Additionally, they haven't been able to access a lot of the resources that and their coping strategies. So, twelve step meetings are are very helpful for a lot of. Um, connection with family, connection with friends, being able to get outside and active and do these things that are alternatives to using substances has been challenging for people. So we've we've seen a lot of people, especially after the first month or two, really started to see rates of relapse increase. Um, um, in terms of what I'm seeing in my own personal experience in the neighborhood that I live in is yeah. it, there's not a week that goes by that someone doesn't reach out to me for help or even just wants to talk about, you know, a spouse or someone they care about. Like, is is this, um, you know, is their drinking a concern? Um, and, and it's a tough question. You know, it's uh, part of my job is to spend a lot of time getting to know people and, and the role that uh, alcohol or drugs play in their life. Um, I really encourage people to sort of read. There, there's some concrete guidelines. Like we know for men, if if you're drinking um, more than five or more drinks per day, that puts you at increased risk for falls, accidents, ending up in emergency departments, um, relationship problems, domestic violence. Um, for women, it's three, it's four or more drinks. Um, in a week, they generally recommend that for men, you're not drinking more than two drinks per day, which ends up being 14 drinks per week. Uh, for women, it's seven. Um, and so those are sort of like 
rules that are based on, um, you know, uh, empirical or, or research that shows when people drink more than that, there are, there are problems. Um, in terms of, you know, how people ask me, well, is my drinking a problem or not? Well, I try to reframe that a little bit with them. You know, what what is your relationship with alcohol? What impact does it have in, in your life, both positive and negative? And what do you... You know what are your goals, and are there are there things that alcohol is is um, uh, impeding, or is it impacting your relationships? Um, and and if so, um, you know what what would be reasonable things that you would want to try and do? So I I think with anything with anything that we do, it's important to just examine how what role does it play in our life, and and is is that the role we want it to be playing? Yeah, I think it's interesting in, in the neighborhood that that I live in and just the circles that I run in. Um, you know, I also get some of those similar questions just being in behavioral health and having a social work background. And and I do feel like similar to what Melissa said at the beginning, it's people that are having these first time experiences with anxiety and depression, maybe, or it's just, you know, this has been going on so long now that people are like the light seems dinner, dimmer at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, that hope that people naturally kind of fall back to they struggle with it and they're starting to see patterns in their own behavior and what's interesting to me um and i'd just be interested in your guys' take on this is i feel like you have to do a lot of pausing and reflecting and looking inward and i'm recognizing how many people are uncomfortable with that i'm recognizing that we're so used to being fast-paced in this society that just the pausing just to analyze whether you know you got the questions you asked you know do I, what's my relationship like? I don't think anybody's, you know, that I run with has really thought about that consciously. I think um, we've become such a reactionary society. I mean, do you guys see that a lot coming in and out of your clinic? I feel like that's what I'm seeing outside. Yeah, I think that's really well said, James. And specifically, I think when it comes to alcohol, the term, you know, alcoholic is so stigmatized that people are afraid to even just, um, take a step back and, and look at their relationship with alcohol for fear of um, asking that question makes them an alcoholic somehow. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't mean to laugh because I know like um, that, that fear is real and it comes from yeah. um, it, it's so associated with how strong the stigma is, which is its own problem that hopefully as a society we can continue working on. I think it's just, um, it's important to, to realize that asking yourself those questions, um, whatever the answer is, if, if, if the answer is I do need to reassess my relationship with whatever the substance may be, asking yourself those questions and being honest and talking to your family members about it or your loved ones, um, it takes guts um, and it can be really difficult, but um, it's worth it. And really everybody probably should be a little bit more introspective during this time um, when we're, when it's very easy to fall into habits that are going to cause us problems in the longer term if we don't analyze what we're doing. Yeah. Um, Melissa, one other thought I had when you were, when you were just talking there, um, you know, there's, there's a saying that I really like, um, a problem is never as small as the first time you notice it. Um, I think oftentimes people have an idea of what, alcohol you know what an alcohol use disorder or what an alcoholic looks like um and so you know the reason why it tends to be so severe and the cases tend to be such like out where you see people destroying in their lives is because they when it's a very small problem they're ashamed to talk and they don't address it and it just grows and grows and grows 
goes, where if you take that same person and you identify it very early and you intervene early, the changes can be really moderate, really mild. You know, sometimes it's just delaying at what point in the day you drink. Um, sometimes it's just altering what you're drinking. Sometimes it's just tracking what you're drinking. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, it, just like anything we treat in medicine, the earlier you identify it and intervene, the better the outcomes are going to be. And I, and I think that's sometimes there's a there's an all or nothing thought process that comes around alcohol or other substance use. And that's just that's not that's not reality. That, that's such a great point. That was such a well said by both of you. I, 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 you know, this is why I think these podcasts are important and these conversations are important because not everybody has the opportunity to obviously have, you know, dialogue like this. And I, I think that's very helpful. Doug, before we move on from you, you know, I know we talked briefly about medications um, from Dr. Odell's point of view, and you had mentioned talk about that. But I know there's specific medications, you know, people forget that we're still in an opioid crisis um, and, and we still have, you know, um, big problem in this country, particularly with that. And I know you um, you have an OUD uh, clinic there. And so talk to me a little bit. Let's just get the facts straight on medications, particularly with substance use and opioids. Yeah, um, so medications um, are one of the tools that we have uh, in our arsenal in addressing substance use disorders. Um, I think most people um, are aware there's medications to treat people who have uh, uh, need help with uh, quitting smoking or nicotine use. Um, and I think people are more aware of those because there's less stigma around smoking as opposed to some of these other things. Um, yeah. But there's also highly effective treatments for, for alcohol. And you mentioned opioids. Um, the other thing that's really important is that we're addressing, you know, it's, it's more the norm uh, that there is, um, you know, comorbid anxiety or depression when when you're uh, working with someone who has a substance use disorder. So making sure that we're addressing those, whether that be through therapy or through, um, you know, some of the self-help resources that are out there or, um, you know, medications if, if they're appropriate. But yeah, there, there's lots and lots of options, but the, the and, and it'd be way outside the scope of this talk to go through all of those. But I think just knowing that there are some things out there, it's not just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, I think that's so important. One time that you, you, Doug, you'll be happy to know that you've had an impact on me because I know I do listen to things you said. And one of the things that I, has always stayed with me is, you know, it's, it's funny when it comes to substance use and even mental health in general, when we talk about treating them, you know, we would never think about treating um, diabetes without insulin and we'd never think about treating, you know, heart disease without cholesterol medication. But then when it comes to adding medication to the treatment mix with substance use particularly, but even in medication with mental health, you know, it's like we pause. It's like we, you know, we question it differently. And that's always stayed with me. I'm like, why is that? Like, why, why do we think that way? I don't think twice about, you know, if somebody told me I had to take insulin to, to function better, I'd be doing that. So, so that's, that, that's always stayed with me. And I think those questions are, are important to get out there. Let's, let's talk a little bit. We'd mentioned earlier, which I think was super helpful. Um, and, and Melissa brought up kind of what she's seen outside the clinic. What, what best advice would the two of you give? Uh, what, what do you find that you're handing out on a regular basis in this current environment? You know, you guys have mentioned people asking for help outside of here. What advice do you have for just those of us that are experiencing kind of this collective anxiety? And, you know, probably, I mean, I can tell you there's been times over this last couple of months that I've just felt depressed, situationally depressed. And, 
had to figure out how to pick myself up with. So what advice can you give our listeners that way? And, and Dr. Odell, let's start with you. Well, one thing I'm finding myself recommending to a lot of people um, is to take yourself out of this um, this news environment where you, it's very easy to marinate in all the worst things that are going on in the world and in our country um, all day long. If you let yourself, you know, if you're watching, uh, if, you know, you're p- keeping up with news alerts that you get on your phone all day long or however you consume the news, um, you really can stay informed to the degree that is necessary by setting yourself a time and a time limit and saying that's when I'm going to catch up with what's going on and the rest of the time I'm going to take a break. One of the other things that I think is difficult right now is people are really having to get creative in terms of how you maintain those relationships. You know, as Doug was saying earlier, everybody's lonely, everybody's isolated to a certain degree. Um, I don't know that it's possible to 100% remedy that situation right now, but what can we do um, that's safe from a, you know, COVID exposure standpoint to try to uh, reach out to other people, offer support to people who are, um, who are struggling, receive support from friends and family. Um, while the weather's nice, you know, what can you do outside? Maybe I think people, uh, maybe after weeks in the beginning of lots of Zoom happy hours got kind of some Zoom fatigue. So yes. what, can we get more creative than that and maybe get to know your neighbors a little bit and have some conversations, you know, masked outdoors, ideally with people who maybe previously you never really thought to try to reach out to, um, or just plain old phone calls, getting back to basics. Um, Hmm. what, what can you do to, to maintain those relationships when you can't hang out with people the way you normally would? And, um, and you do kind of have to get creative and, and come up with some, some new ideas that work to um, transition those relationships so that they're still um, meaningful and restorative like those um, family and friendships should be. And um, it's, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Um, and I think that it um, can do wonders for your mood when you um, find those ways to connect with people. Yeah, I totally agree. That was, that was really well said. Um, I find myself handing that out as well. What about you, Doug? What about you handing out? Well, yeah, I agree with everything Melissa said. I I really emphasize, I guess I would say two things. I emphasize maintaining a schedule. Um, You know, that's if you're working from home, um, you know, sleep schedules are really important. Um, You know, getting up every day and getting dressed, even if you don't have to go into the office, you know, taking a shower every day, um, you know, Things like that, having that structure, I think can can help to, um, you know, create some normalcy. Yeah. Um, the other thing um, that I would I would say, and, and I do this a lot with um, the patients, I, I always try and end every uh, every appointment that I have with um, asking them to reflect on one positive thing that's come out of this, right? And so I think for many many people. Um, they say, you know, I, I've reconnected with my family or I've gotten to spend time with uh, my family in a way that wasn't possible before. I know for, for myself and my wife, we really, we're going to reexamine what all we do with our children after this because we've really enjoyed being able to spend time with them and not having to run from place to place and birthday party to birthday party and soccer match and everything that goes on. Um, you know, and I think some of those things will come back, but I think we're going to be more um, thoughtful in how we reincorporate those things because, um, you know, that's one of the positive things. And I think there's other things like that. So, so trying to reframe this in a way, um, that that's a little more positive can be helpful too. 
Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, I really hope. I've had a lot of those conversations. I'm a type A personality myself. And, and it, there has been some, you know, this refreshing feeling for a lot of us that are saying, wow, I don't want to be on the go, you know, all the time anymore, that that was exhausting. Um, and then there's parts of it that you completely miss, right? Being around people, it's, it's been really, you know, I'm extroverted. It's, this is especially hard for people that are extroverted. Um, we, we fill up that way. I love that, um, Melissa, you said restorative and the relationships being restorative, really evaluating which relationships are restorative and taking this opportunity to let go of those relationships that aren't. I think that is such, those were great words, meaningful and restorative. I found that I've had to do that when you have less time and you can't really spend it with everybody. You can't fit everybody in. You're going to be more selective with, with who you are. So I really appreciate that advice to both of you. Bree, why don't you wrap us up? Sure. So now's the time in every episode where we each share a, a favorite takeaway. So who wants to go first? I can. So I, I figured just, you know, get it out of the way so I don't have to be uh, <laughs> this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm modeling what I, what I uh, tell, tell people don't, don't delay, just jump in because it'll, your anxiety <laughs> will only build. So um, I think the things that I took away from this um, is just how common and, and how much of a shared experience this is for, for everyone. Um, and, and if you have questions, you know, reach out, talk to, I, I, I think primary care is a great place to start if you have questions and, and this is not going to be something unusual or, or off the wall or, you know, something that they're not used to answering. And that's a great place to kind of start. Yeah, that's helpful. That's good. Melissa. Um, you know, one thing that struck me as we were talking is how, varied, um, you know, how wide the spectrum is in terms of what the severity of what people are experiencing right now and severity of their symptoms and, and how the, um, what the level of intervention that's necessary to try to help them feeling better is also going to be vastly different from one person to the next. Um, but there's resources out there for everybody. Um, if it's just a matter of figuring out how to access them. And I think I'll give, um, I can, suggest some things to for um, listeners uh, as far as self-help resources for depression and anxiety if you're thinking that, that maybe you'd like to get some help. And uh, I know it, it can be difficult um, financially to afford um, therapy for some people. So there are some things um, that you can start to do on your own if that's not in the cards for you right now and that's kind of where you're at. So um, help is out there, but I know. Um, and as Doug was saying, I think there's some there's some comfort knowing that we're all kind of struggling together. Um, and that's been something that's been actually kind of nice to share with my patients uh, in a weird way. Yeah, no, I agree with that too. Bree, what about you? What's your takeaway? Um, yeah, like both of you have said, um, how it's, it's our, a lot of people's first experience dealing with these kind of emotions and how important it is to, to take care of each other. If there's a friend that you have that you haven't heard from in a long time, maybe reach out to them. Um, and also I like to maintain a schedule. I know I haven't been keeping my schedule this week and it has definitely impacted um, <laughs> my work ethic and attitude. <laughs> well, some of those, I mean, this is what the benefits of some of this podcast is, is this some of the small tweaks that people can do that can help them feel better and get them through the day, especially now. And 
I'm learning that as I go. I've always felt that way that if we could take some of those, make those small differences, like Doug, you were talking about before, that that really helps people. I, I think some of the words you both use are going to stick with me for some of my takeaway. Looking inward, I'm a big fan of that, and even reminding during this conversation that I need to make more time for myself personally to do that and really evaluate those relationships on who's meaningful and restorative and who's not. Love those words, Dr. Odell. Um, and Doug's quote of a problem is never as small as the first time, you know, you notice it. I, I have not heard that one. So I really love that. And Doug, I'm going to be using that. I can tell you right now. So, um, so I, those were big takeaways for me. And, um, and I think just getting some of that common misconception um, that's around our industry out um, was helpful. So I really appreciate you guys doing this. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I I feel a little better. I don't know about you, James, but <laughs> I feel a little better. <laughs> I do, I do. And, and we thank our listeners for tuning in today as well. Really appreciate that. Um, Bree, do you want to do our closing statement? Sure. This project is brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction and Mental Health Technology Transfer Centers, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Essential Conversations in Social Services 2020.